what I want to talk to you about is love. Has anybody noticed, as you look out across the country, that the spirit of the age is not loving? There's a great German word called Zeitgeist, which means the spirit of the age. And one of the things that happens when the spirit changes is you can see it go over the entire country. And what I will suggest to you is that the spirit of the age right now is not loving. So what I want to do is talk to you about it. And in fact, I think that a loving spirit is kind of under attack. We're consumed with anger and bitterness, and we are not immune from that. Just because you're sitting in the church doesn't mean that you're immune from anger and bitterness. So I want to talk to you about that. So when we talk about love, we got three languages involved here. I speak English. You guys all speak English. Love in English is an ambiguous word. It can mean you love your mother. It can mean you love your spouse. And that could involve reproduction. You love ice cream. Love your shirt. So love has a whole bunch of different meanings depending on context in English. Greek is a little bit more precise. They've got four words for love, three of which are used in the New Testament. One is not. First one is agapeo, or agape, and I read a really good definition of that, and that's active love. That's love that cares for someone, love that does things, love that causes you to act. That's kind of a nice definition. Then there's phileo, which is friendship. There's eros, which is romantic or sexual love. That's not in the New Testament. And the last one is storge, which is natural love. So that's the love, for example, of a parent to a child. That's just something that happens naturally because of our human condition. So as you're reading the New Testament and you see the word love, you sort of have to look underneath it to see what is actually being talked about there. And of course, we read it in English, and we have the English ambiguous definition of love, so it's very easy to misunderstand what's being said in the New Testament when you just see the word love. Then we got Hebrew. And Hebrew love is very similar to English love. It's ambiguous. Ambiguous is not the right word. It is used in various different contexts and it has different meanings, very much like in English. So let's take a look at Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Now, what the lawyer is doing is he is smashing together two different Hebrew scriptures. The first one is the Vehavta. You all familiar with the Vehavta? Lots of synagogues use that as a set prayer. In fact, many messianic synagogues do. We don't happen to. In Hebrew is Ve'ahavta et Adonai Eloheka Bekol Levavka Uvekol Nafshecha Uvekol Meodeka. 
which is to say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, notice that there's three things in there, all of which is, you shall love the Lord your God. And loving the Lord your God is broken into three components. One is with your heart or mind. The other one is with your soul. And the third one is with your strength. So loving the Lord your God encompasses all three of those aspects. And by the way, notice that none of those is particularly emotional. So loving with all your mind. That means that you all are sitting in here. You say, okay, I believe the scriptures. You've decided that you believe that. You've decided that you love the Lord your God, which is good. That's one level. The next level is at the nephish level. And for those of you who remember the Musar course, nephish is the part of you that sort of gives you stability. That's where your habits live. That's where your sense of survival lives. That's where your stability is. You actually don't have direct access to that. The example I use when we were doing the Musar course. You ever seen a little kid go up on a diving board and he's watched everybody jumping off the high dive? And you see this little kid get up to the high dive and he goes out on the end and all of a sudden he just freezes, completely locks up. That's his nephish. His nephish is saying, we're not going to do this because if we do, we're going to die. So I'm just locking all the systems up. We're not moving. We're going to stay right here. And at that point, the kid has a sort of a decision to make. One is, am I going to turn around and crawl back down the ladder? And lots of kids do. The other one is, am I going to be embarrassed in front of all my friends? And you decide, death before dishonor, and leaps off. That's your nephish that is controlling that. So when it says, you shall love the Lord your God with your nephish, what it's saying is, you need to internalize that so that it becomes part of who you are. Not just, yeah, I've read the book, and yeah, I believe that, and yeah, I think it's okay. But this is part of who I am, my love of God. So when the Ve'ahavta says, you shall love with all your nephish or your soul, that's what it's talking about. And by the way, that also is what it means when you write the law on your heart. In other words, you've internalized it. It's become part of you. The example I use is my mother, God bless her, was real big on dental care. I can't go to sleep until I've brushed my teeth. Just can't do it. That's written on my nephish. That's part of who I am. So when it says you shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, what it's talking about is that level of bringing God into you. And then the final one is you shall love the Lord your God with all your strength. That means that you've got to behave in a way that shows your love of God. It's not enough to say it, it's not enough to believe it, but you've actually got to do stuff. You've got to go out in the world and you've got to do stuff that reflects God acting through you. That's what the Ve'ahavta is saying when it talks about loving God. Now, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the other half of what Yeshua brought up, and that's in Leviticus 19. Notice two completely different books that have been welded together here. Leviticus 19, starting in verse 17. 
You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So what the lawyer is doing is he's welding those two passages together. The one from Deuteronomy, the Vehavta, and the one from Leviticus. And he's saying that is the core of the Torah. That is the thing that you have to do to inherit eternal life. That's what Yeshua says, right? So let's look at that for a second. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge. Again, notice those are two different things. Tell they're spelled differently, right? Taking vengeance is active. When you have been wronged and you go back and do something active against your neighbor, that's taking vengeance. Actually, I've got to back up a second. There's nothing wrong with vengeance. God takes vengeance. In Romans, it says that the magistrate takes vengeance on the wrongdoer. Vengeance is not the problem. The problem is who does it. When God does it, it's okay. When the law does it, it's okay. When you do it, it's not. And the reason for that is when you're the one that's wrong, you don't have any perspective. And you're very likely to go off and chop somebody's head off just for stepping on your toe because you're angry and all that. That's why God says, do not take vengeance yourself. If vengeance needs to happen, either God will do it or the law will do it, but you don't do it. So vengeance is active. The other one is a grudge. A grudge is passive. And what you do with a grudge is you take that injury that you think you have sustained, and it may be real, it may not, but in your mind it's a real injury, and you suck it inside, and it just sits there. First off, it's eating on you, but the second thing it's doing is waiting. When I was director of housing on a fort, I had a problem with the contracting officer, and we just cracked heads all the time. And my deputy said, you know... Just let it go. And what you do is you take up a rifle and you lay it on a steady rest. And at some point, they're going to walk in front of your sights. And then, bam. Obviously metaphorical. But what he was telling me was, bear a grudge. And wait for the opportune time. And then you can get your vengeance. So when the Torah says, you will not take vengeance and you will not bear a grudge, That's what it's talking about. And instead, go to your neighbor, see if you can work it out, go to the law if you have to. But don't take it inside, because what you get then is anger, bitterness, and it always comes out. You may think that you've got it all tamped down and you've forgotten it, but you haven't. It will always come out. And so love is the antidote for that. Now, the place I actually want to get to is... Yeshua's letter to the church in Ephesus. What does that have to do with anything? Everything. So it's in Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. 
I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love, agape. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It is my impression that we are the church in Ephesus. We very much care about studying. We very much care about doctrine. We very much test all of the other people who are out there against the Torah. That's what we're good at. And by the way, God says, that's a good thing. But, he says, we've abandoned our first love. Now, what does that mean? Well, and those of you who have been around a while know that Yeshua's kingdom parables, Paul's pastoral letters, and Yeshua's letters to the seven church all match up. Those of you who have been here a while know that. I'm not going to go through it all. But what you have is three different perspectives on the same church. From Yeshua's perspective before the crucifixion, from Paul's perspective while waiting for the Lord's return, and then from the Lord's perspective in Revelation. Same subject and so forth. And interestingly enough, in Paul's letters, what do you suppose the dominant word is in the Ephesian letter? Would you believe love? Paul talks about love in the book of Ephesians more than he talks about love anywhere else. Yeshua is telling us in the letter to the Ephesians, you guys have abandoned your first love. So what I'm suggesting to you is that if we go back and look at Ephesians and see what Paul has to say about love, it will illuminate what Yeshua is saying about love, and it will give us some information about how we as a church should be behaving. So the first thing is the problem we've abandoned our love. It doesn't say anything about your knowledge of Scripture. It doesn't say anything about your doctrine. It doesn't say anything about your good works, any of that stuff. No criticism there. You all do well. But let's talk about love. Let's go to Ephesians, and I'm, I'm just going to dip into it. Ephesians 4 is sort of the core of it. He talks about it in several places, but Ephesians 4 is the, the main chunk. So let's pick it up in 4.1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you were called, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So the first part of the love is bearing with one another. Ding, 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 ding. One of the things that's going on in the country right now, which I let off with, we have the spirit of this age, which is angry and bitter. And we're not immune from that. What winds up happening is we run our mouths among ourselves in the ways that can be damaging and hurtful. And I will tell you, we have had several people in the last 
nine months because somebody said something, and not maliciously, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying anybody's been malicious here, but what I'm saying is you have been thoughtless. We have been thoughtless. And you've let your mouth run, and somebody has taken offense and has left. What Paul is talking about is bearing with one another in love. So you need to pay attention to what's coming out of your mouth. So that's sort of thing one. Let's go down to verse 10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things and give the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, it's sort of a common Christian thing among preachers that this speaking the truth in love, for many people, is the barn door that opens wide for a critical spirit. I'm saying it in love! And what happens is people get bruised. And when they get bruised, they very often leave. And one of the things that he's saying is we are supposed to be building the body up in love, not dividing it and not tearing it down. As a side note, by the way, I will suggest we've got some books back there by Hofetz Haim, which talks about positive word power. In other words, the power of saying things positive to each other, as opposed to speaking the truth in love as it is interpreted by lots of people. And don't get me wrong, if somebody is in serious error and needs help and needs to be corrected, that should happen. But it's got to be done gently. So, what we're going through right now as a country, the COVID regulations are demoralizing. They're designed to be demoralizing. This is not an accident. So the idea that certain government officials want us not to gather for Thanksgiving not to gather for Christmas, not to gather in church, not to celebrate. That's deliberate. That is not some well-meaning health official that is trying to do his best. I'm sorry, I don't buy that. It's aimed at the people of God and trying to make us demoralized. One of the reasons we're still open is we decided early on that we weren't going to play. And God has protected us, and God has cared for us, and I still firmly believe it was the right decision. Because the people of God have to be together. They have to be one body. They have to build each other up. We have to be the antidote to this heavy, leaden spirit that is over the rest of the country. That's our job. And in doing that, we need to make sure that we aren't injuring each other accidentally. Notice how I said that. I said accidentally. I'm not accusing anybody of harming anybody on purpose. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you can hurt each other accidentally. 
So you need to think about that and be cognizant. One other thing that I will talk about just for briefly and then I'll quit. Back to Revelation 2, 1 through 7, verse 6. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let me talk about that for a minute. Nobody's really entirely sure who the Nicolaitans were or what they were. Some of the early church fathers said that it was a cult that followed Nicholas, who was one of the deacons in Acts chapter 6. And he went off the deep end and went into licentiousness and sensuality and a whole bunch of other stuff. Irenaeus, for example, talks about that. I don't know. Lots of other sources I've read don't know. What I want to talk about is what does the word mean? Nicolaitan. And what it is is a compound Greek word. Nico, which means conqueror or ruler. And the laity, so ruler over the common people. For example, those of you who are familiar with the Catholic Church, you've got the clergy and you've got the laity. That's the same word. Clergy are the ones that do all the official stuff and so forth. The laity are just the sheep. Don't get me wrong, being a sheep is a good thing. But you get the difference in it. So Nicolaitans are rulers over the laity. And what Yeshua says is, I hate that. And, oh, by the way, you do too. Now, I was listening to your prayers this morning. And your prayers are talking about all of the stuff that is going on from the government down upon us. Restrictions, all that kind of stuff. That's Nicolaitan. That's ruling over the people. What God wants us to do is to walk in liberty. That's what the Torah is, is how do you keep from going back into slavery? He wants us to be free. He does not like systems that enslave people. And you don't either. So God is saying, ha, cool, you got that one right. You got your doctrine right. You got your Torah study right. You got all that right. Now, focus on the thing that you have abandoned which is a loving heart for each other, bearing with each other in patience, being kind and gentle to each other. And then that kindness and gentleness should go out. Shouldn't just stay here. Got to start here, but it should go out. So take that and be kind to each other. <laughs> <laughs> 